the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, my name is Richard Moore and, uh, well, joining us on the regular cycling podcast this week, this is a first. It might even be the first time you two have met. Mm. Ian Boswell. Hello, Ian. Hello, Richard. And Francois Tomaso. Hello, guys. Uh, we, we met before, actually. No, not not very often, but yeah, I, I even talked to uh, to Ian on, on his bike once, so you see. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Well, I guess when you rode the Tour, Ian, perhaps you passed yeah, across. Yeah, I think we met before that. I actually remember coming across Francois at the uh, Hotel Fontenac up in in Quebec City, but I, oh. I, I knew him from the podcast. I think he had come on. This was the early days of, of Francois joining. And I remember walking past him in the hall and I wanted to go say hi, but I was a little bit actually too, uh, too scared to go, go introduce myself. So yeah, here we are really? now. Oh yeah. shit. <laughs> you should have. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I should, uh, this is, this all goes really well, doesn't it? I mean, some basic fact checking, like, you know, have you two met? And actually it turns out you've, you, you're more than well acquainted with each other. Um, but, uh, well, we've drawn this, uh, this team together, um, Francois will be joining us at the Tour de France in a, a few weeks, of course. And with, well, for various reasons, we're all we're all spread across the globe at the moment. Um, Ian, you are somewhere very interesting with a very interesting weekend ahead of you. Tell us about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm in Emporia, Kansas for the Unbound 200, which is on, um, yeah, I think it's June 6th, coming up on Saturday. I'm not sure when this is going out, but it's uh yeah the i would say the most kind of prestigious gravel event uh globally it's uh for one reason or another it's uh become kind of the crown jewel of, of gravel racing and it seems like everyone is here i actually uh rode with uh lawrence tendam and thomas decker yesterday um which is a which is a funny kind of turn of events actually i cooked dinner for tendam the other day and he after he as he sat down for dinner he's like I never thought that you'd be cooking dinner for me. And it's just, it's a funny world to see that, you know, I've raced with these, these guys so long in the world tour. And now I'm cooking dinner for them in the middle of the U S in in plains of grass. I mean, <laughs> Lawrence Tendam famously eats a barbecue every night. I hope you, I hope you grilled <laughs> the meat for I him. I did not. I made a, a Thai green curry with chicken. Um, he ate a lot of it. I mean, he, he finished his plate, but uh, no, I didn't, I didn't have any barbecue or, or steak grilled. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the quirks of Lawrence Tendam. He, he has claimed in the past that he, he has a barbecue every night. Uh, so anyway, well, I mean, maybe that's a great way of um, sort of, in interrupting his build-up, Ian, to uh, to the race. I mean, this is your your thing now. Obviously, last year was was heavily disrupted. Um, if any races happened at all, how are you feeling ahead of this one? Are you are you going to win it? Uh, we'll see. I, we did. I did a hundred miles yesterday with with the with the Dutch Navy with Tendam, and there's some other riders over here. And um, that's only half the distance of the race coming up. So a two hundred mile event. You know, I've been riding and feeling fit. I did a race a couple of weeks ago down in in Arkansas. The rule of three, which was only a hundred miles. Um, so a 200 mile event is, is something completely different. And there is a very, you know, stacked field here. I've been speaking to Matteo Jorgensen who just came out of the Giro. Um, so you never know how, you know, some of these world tour riders will kind of transfer over to, to an event like this. I mean, even you look at an event like the Giro, there's nothing as long as, as this race coming up with, you know, 200 miles. I think the winning time will be around 10 hours, which is, uh, yeah, something from, 
racing of of old you know you think of old giro stages may have had some 10 hour days but it seems like road racing is getting shorter and and the gravel events are getting longer so am i going to win i don't know um but i'm happy to be here it's not going to be raining which is fantastic i'm not a big fan of getting all muddy and dirty so it'll be it'll be an experience nonetheless and there's quite a lot of buzz here in, in a very small town in in uh, kansas around around the event and it's cool to see kind of the growth of of gravel racing here in the u.s and to be quite frank this is probably the biggest cycling event in the u.s now you know when you think the the absence of tour california and colorado and utah this is probably the the single biggest cycling event in the u.s in in 2021 and, and honestly when i've watched these races um they, they're more spectacular to watch than a lot of the American road races with no no disrespect intended, but I think that's possibly, I mean, it could be the future of bike racing in, in the US, couldn't it? And, and the US, you know, bike racing scene really following its own gravel path. Yeah, definitely. And this, so the, I think it's the final several hours are actually going to be televised this year. Um, you know, the biggest issue is, you know, one budget, you know, of, of these event organizers, but <clears throat> also, you know, we're oftentimes in remote areas. So actually being able to get service and, you know, in a, a way to actually transmit live feed is, is challenging, but, you know, with the improvement of technology, it is happening. And, um, I don't know if any of anyone wants to watch 10 hours of racing, but, um, yeah, a little highlight reel would be, would be cool to just to see how the race kind of unfolds and develops. And Francois, well, we were very disappointed, of course, that you weren't able to join us at the Giro d'Italia as originally planned, but uh, perfectly understandable reasons why you couldn't. Um, how are you, and are you looking forward to the the Tour de France? Well, I'm 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 fine actually. Yeah, I've been looking after my 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 dad. I mean, as I explained in in the podcast uh, before, I'm still still living at this place for 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 a while until I manage to uh, manage to find a way. Uh, you know to cope with the the situation, but it's okay. Uh, yeah, it, it, well, they're they're doing all right. My uh, parents and uh, and my stepmother. So I mean, you know, it's it's a problem with getting old. I mean, uh, I should know. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to. I'm, I'm once again, I'm I'm sorry for in 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 ways I'm relieved I didn't do the Giro because I, the weather was terrible, wasn't it? I mean, you 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 were all soaked in in rain. It looked really really you know grim and cold. Uh, up in the mountains there were a couple of uh, chairlifts as well and as you know i don't take chairlifts i mean um, it's it's a kind of one of my phobias so uh, yeah uh, for, for, for this but but i mean the the, the, the cycling was uh, was was brilliant I, I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about it uh and yeah of course looking forward to 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 doing the tour again uh especially uh, well coming out of the uh the pandemic and the tour we did last year which which, which was great but peculiar in many ways uh well let's hope it, it'll get back to sort of normal and uh and yeah of course it, it's going to be exciting and and i hope to uh, uh maybe i pre uh, you know, i kind of prepare it a little uh, even a little better to try and match the expertise of daniel on italian food and uh, way of life uh you know i uh, yeah i i could provide much more you know uh, on the tour of my <laughs> of my knowledge well, of france and uh, and it's uh, it's customs so we'll see yeah yeah, a year of solidly preparing for that. We are going to look back on the on the Giro a little bit. Um, obviously, we, we covered that um, in, at great length while we were there, but we will look back a bit. It'd be very interested to hear 
your thoughts, Ian and Francois. We'll talk a bit about the Dauphiné, although it's ongoing as we speak. Uh, stage five is uh, is happening right now. Um, so, but we'll look ahead to the the big mountain stages at the weekend. And in the final part, we're going to talk a little bit about Naomi Osaka, a tennis player. Not really. <laughs> about her or about tennis, although I think Francois will have a fascinating perspective on that, given that he ran the, the press office at the French Open for a few years. But her decision to to not participate in press conferences and then her withdrawal from the tournament has raised a lot of questions about sport, the media, press conferences, and so on. So I thought it would be very interesting to get um, your, both your perspectives on that too. A brief news roundup, first of all, and it is brief, but the Dauphine, as I said, is going on couple of surprises in the first two stages Brent Van Moore young Belgian rider at Lotte Sudal um, an incredible breakaway he survived from a bigger break to, to win alone and take the first yellow jersey I think he paid for that a bit the next day Lucas Postelberger did a similar thing won alone and he took over the yellow jersey and as I speak he's still wearing that did a, a very good time trial yesterday stage four but Sonny Colbrelli having finished second the first two stages won the third stage Alexei Lutsenko was the surprise winner of the time trial. I mean, it was a, a lot of surprising results in the time trial. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, the other big race that was going on sort of towards the tail end of the Giro was the International Lotto Turingen Tour, a race that the organisers had to work hard to put on, but it was a great race, some really good coverage of it too on uh, on the GCN player. Um Stages won by Emma Norsgaard, Lorena Vibus won two, Lucinda Brand won two, and Lotta Kopecky won one. Now, Kopecky was announced this week as having joined SD Works for from next year. Quite an unusual kind of big announcement mid-season, but she's moving on from Live Racing. Overall, Brand was the winner, Kopecky was second, and Emma Norsgaard, one of the revelations of the season, was third. Another bit of news, Tom Pidcock uh, broke his collarbone in a training crash in Andorra. He'd been due to ride the Tour of Switzerland, but will now take some time off. Another bit of news is, um, sadly, affects one of our own, Lionel Burney, who's supposed to be undertaking his Tour de Cosse with Simon Gill. Uh, Today was supposed to be day one. Unfortunately, it hasn't gone to plan and this will be rearranged. Lionel has posted a message on social media. But I know you're not not all on so, social media, so I thought I would read it out. Um, as I write this, Simon and I should have been somewhere between Gretna and Gatehouse of Fleet. Our slow-moving dot would have been just arriving in Dumfries on the first leg of a 13-day adventure. I know from the comments on social media, a lot of people were looking forward to following our journey, seeing photographs of my 13 consecutive full Scottish breakfasts on social media, and even joining us for a few miles along the way. But this morning... After a very uncomfortable night, and with the help and support of my podcast colleagues, I made the difficult decision to abandon before crossing the start line. A close family member is currently unwell, and while I had their blessing and support to embark on the trip, as soon as I left home yesterday morning, it felt like the wrong thing to do. The last 15 months have been difficult for everyone, and I have been struggling with my own mental health lately too. I had hoped that a cycling trip would be just the tonic, and I felt very fortunate to be able to count it as work but it proved to be too much for me to take on at the moment. A lot of preparation has gone into the Tour de Cosse, including by Simon and our production team, and I'm particularly grateful to all the people who've helped me in the planning by giving up their time to talk to me for the podcast in advance of our departure. I don't want to put that work to waste by attempting the trip while I'm unable to focus fully on it. 
we will reschedule the tour when I'm feeling up to being away and perhaps the buffalo will be available to ride on the front then too. Not sure about that last bit, but we do wish Lionel all the best and I look forward to the rescheduled Tour de Cos. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimise your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalised analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens, the only real-time energy management system for athletes. With the Super Sapiens device, you can get insights into athletic fueling so you can make the right fueling choices to help you achieve your goals. It's being used by a lot of top riders already, including Jumbo Visma, Ineos Grenadiers and Canyon Schramm. And Evander Bregan is using it too. It's a continuous glucose monitoring system that helps you make the right fueling choices. And over time, the user can learn how best to manage your energy resources. It takes the guesswork out of when and what to eat. I've just taken delivery of my Abbott Libra Sense glucose sport biosensors. I've set up the app and now I have to stick it to the back of my upper arm, which I haven't done yet, but I will do probably this afternoon. Uh, I'm looking forward to finding out how it works and uh, learning what I can from it. If you want to know more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com. During the Giro, we were running a competition offering three months worth of Super Sapiens sensors to three lucky winners. We heard their entries during the Giro. We haven't got, we haven't selected the three winners yet. Um, we, I, I did say we'd have done it by now. I'm afraid we haven't. It's been a bit hectic post-Giro, but we will do it for next week, I promise, and we'll uh, announce our three winners next week. Um, chaps, the Dauphiné. Uh, we'll talk about the Giro in the next part, but, I mean, it's it's been a, a, a funny race in a way because this race that is traditionally the, the, the big Tour de France kind of dress rehearsal, um, it feels a little bit, a little bit light this year Ineos Grenadiers have sent their their strong strongest team, pretty much their Tour de France team, uh, with the 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 three. Well, without Richard Carapaz, but with Geraint Thomas and Teo Gegenhart. But the big two missing are, of course, Primoz Roglic and Tadej Pogacar. And I just wondered, you know, if if that has left it slightly decaffeinated, you know, is it is it the the rehearsal, the the, the sort of very important. Uh, pre-tour race that it traditionally has been mm, shall I go <laughs> um, well I've, I've been in this uh, you know covering the sport for for longer than uh, than Ian has been a rider so I, I've, I've seen the Dauphiné uh, many many years be- before it became what it is now uh, you know in the old days it was not so much uh, preparation for the tour it was a, a race in itself you know in the in the days of Ino and all these guys they, they, the, the preparation was very different because the, the world tour was different so it's quite it's, it's kind of not not new, but I I I, I think you know the, the, this this Texan guy uh, was the was the one who set the trend uh, of using the Dauphiné as the the, the best gear uh, race for the tour. Uh, it's not always been uh, there's 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 other ways. Some guys use the Giro sometimes, you know, as a preparation for the tour. The Tour de Suisse has also been uh, used as a, as a preparation for the tour. So the 
obviously ASO ASO are you know to account for uh, in in the, the, they obviously want the the, uh, the Dauphiné to be a kind of dress rehearsal for the tour by 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 staging you know stages which are very similar to the Tour de France. That's why you got dress, re- but the, but this also is is kind of new, and I think that it's it was also an attempt by ASO to attract uh, some of the uh, Tour de France stars, uh, you know, by 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 try to kind of you know um, carbon copy uh, the, the the tour uh, route you know in, in a week at, at the Dauphiné it, 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 it did well it was not the case in the past it, it is now but obviously it, it, it was not good enough you know even if uh, some of the, the the mountains that are going to be climbed in, the, in this Dauphiné and, in, and have been in the past will also be included in Tour de France it, it, it didn't seem enough to attract uh, you know a, a great field this season it's, it's not the first time that happened you remember Paris Tirreno uh, the, the, the competition between the two uh, for, for the past 15 or 20 years has, has, has been you know, more, more often than, than once Won by uh, Tirreno, and that there's, there's there's an ongoing kind of a, a clash between RCS and ASO to try and attract uh, the best riders. Um, wh- why the, wh- why do we have? Uh, well, it, it's it will be. It would be unfair to say there's a weak field at, at the Dauphiné when you have Valverde on top of the, the best Ineos team. Uh, you know you've got some. You've got David Godu. There, there there are a few. I mean, it, it's a good field, but it, it, of course you've got two guys missing. Then the, the main contenders for the tour. Uh, in a way, you know, two is a crowd, and and the, these two guys missing may make the Dauphiné look less glamorous uh, than than it might have been. But going back to the competition be- between uh, RCS and ASO, you know, so it's very often staging big races in the same uh, in the same time. There used to be a, a rumor, uh, you know, spread by ASO that RCS were actually paying teams to come to their events, where ASO refused to pay teams to come to their events. So, uh, is it still going? Is, is it is it true? Is it still going on? Uh, you know, are other races outside uh, ASO paying teams to 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 come and and you know? Ed ASO paid uh, team, I, I don't know, you know, teams or uh, riders to to come to the Dauphiné. Would they would they come? I, I don't have the answer to that, but there you are. Yeah, I mean, the the Dauphiné was always one of my favorite races of the season. You know, I, I always just yeah, having lived in, in Nice, I loved racing in France, and it seemed you know, I guess in my generation coming up, you know, the Dauphiné was this dress rehearsal for the Tour, and there was so much expectation on you know, kind of how people were performing. And I guess my time at Team Sky, it was the race that you would go to that kind of the, really the tile, the dial was turned up, you know, just with far, as far as, you know, the riders that were selected, but also how the, the team staff and, you know, all the logistics around the race, it was, I think for many teams, it's a really great way to practice and get ready for the tour. You know, that was oftentimes the race where you had all the same mechanics, you had the team chef, you know, for at a team like Ineos or Team Sky, that's when they had, you know, the kitchen truck, you know, they didn't bring that to every race, but it was like, all right, this is where we're going to kind of dial in everything, work out all the kinks. Um, and it's a beautiful race, you know, more often than not, there is one or two stages that, you know, a lot of the mountains resemble a stage that's going to be in the tour. And, you know, I just remember thinking how much, you know, kind of, you know, especially someone like Tim Carrison read into the results of a race like, like the Dauphiné, you know, he really dived into, you know, how our team was performing or, you know, the, the riders at Sky and Ineos, but also the competitors and just seeing where they're at. Um, but, you know, it's always typical mind games of, you know, 
an individual team like oh he's he's going too well too early or oh you know he he's not going to be ready in time um and it's easy to always kind of pawn off your thoughts on on someone else and even you know i was there on a numerous numerous occasions when when Froome didn't win um and of course it was like oh this is part of our plan but if you win obviously it's like all right perfect we're just where we need to be in time for the tour so you know it's easy to kind of build up your own your own team to say you're you're on track but you know, it is, I mean, in my perspective now as someone who, who loves watching the race, you know, I would have loved to see, you know, Rog Roglic and Pogachar at the race, you know, going up against Thomas and, you know, Teo and, you know, everyone else who, who is participating because it is such a, you know, you know, iconic race, I think, in, in at least in my generation, the modern generation of cycling to see kind of the buildup to the tour. And I know you've talked about it on the podcast before, but, you know, I think the the sport really thrives when you see the best riders racing the best riders at, at multiple events, and it does kind of set this stage of, you know, who is who is riding well. I mean, of course, you know they're all going to be at the tour, and you know, but winning winning the Dauphiné on its own is still a huge a huge feat. And I think that, you know, it's it is cool to see you know the best riders going up against each other. And there's been riders you know who who've won the Dauphiné and never won the tour, but that is a that is a huge result to win to win that race. I think you know outside of you know, the Grand Tours, I would say it's one of the most prestigious week-long stage races, in my opinion. I guess maybe that's just because I have a, a bias towards towards France, like Francois, having lived there. Um, but I would, you know, I guess, you know, Paris-Nice and Dauphiné were always kind of the, the two marquee stage races for myself outside of the three Grand Tours. I mean, I, of the right, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a slightly worrying precedent, I guess, in a way. Um, Pogacar's reasons are slightly different. I think he really wants to ride his, his home tour. Um, Roglic, maybe burned a little bit by crashing at the Dauphiné last year, and that, that probably compromised his tour, so he's na- taking no risks. But of the riders who are there, the, the time trial, yes, it was absolutely fascinating because, and I guess this is also a, a, a characteristic of the Dauphiné, riders will not have wrecked um, these stages. Um, so it seems that a few were caught by surprise by the time trial. I mean, it looked quite a benign profile. It, it didn't look as hard on paper as it clearly was. I spoke to Seb Piquet this morning, who's there, and just to get try and get an idea of just how hard it was, because that wasn't totally obvious from the, the TV pictures, but Garant Thomas uh, misjudged his effort pretty badly, and you couldn't imagine him doing that at the Tour, but here he went out too fast and really paid for it on these lumpy climbs towards the finish. You know, 16 kilometres long, um, uh, 300-odd metres of elevation, um, not a mountain time trial, but a time trial that really caught people out and it did make me think it would be fantastic to have a time trial like that at the tour where riders weren't able to wreck it and and it almost like a mystery a mystery time trial because it was that that made the stage so interesting the fact that the riders were not properly prepared for it well, I was going to say, I didn't, I read the, the articles where, you know, Thomas said he, you know, misjudged his effort, but I would be surprised if he didn't ride the course in the morning. I mean, that's pretty standard to, to check out the course in the morning, but clearly, I mean, you see the, the top 10, you know, riders like, like Kilderman and, and, you know, Izagiri who are, you know, great time trialists in their own right, but, you know, definitely you wouldn't think be, you know, up there in a, you know, kind of a flat power time trial. Um, so, you know, definitely must've been a, a challenging course. And, you know, again, this is why, you know, teams do send their riders to the race like the Dolphinet because they really can kind of work out the, the issues that may arise. And it's better that, you know, Thomas made a mistake here than in a couple of weeks time at the Tour de France. Yeah, you, you, you were talking about mind games before, Ian, and, and, and it's, it's always been the case at the Dauphiné. If you take the, the recent history of the, of the race, except for 
for you know Brad Wiggins or Froome from time to time. Uh, it's very rare. Uh, even in the Armstrong days, I mean, I I I I said the name. Uh, he used to make sure what one of his favorite teammates won the Dauphiné. You know, he was kind of a of a you know consolation prize for being at his service during the during the tour. Uh, I I really can't believe, uh, just like Ian, that. You know, Garen Thomas, uh, you know, doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, it, it, it's it's probably part of that. I, I can only see this and the Dauphiné, the way they're, they're tackling it uh, this season uh, as, as, as you know, the, the preparation for the Tour and, and, and you know, and things going according to plan. Uh, uh, you know, he, he, won a, he, he won a stage race already this season, so he proved the form was there. I, I, can't, I can't believe his form has gone all of a sudden. So... I don't know. I, I, it's, it's probably part of mind games. And apart, and I want to to talk a little bit about your suggestion of a mystery stage. It's you know we we we've, we have lots of suggestions about the way to improve uh, cycling and to improve, to improve you know world tour cycling in the future. Gravel is obviously uh, one of the uh, options that's uh, that's doing all right. But I, I never heard that suggestion. But to have a mystery stage in uh, in every Grand Tour could be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and just on the point that, you know, that, you know, Thomas said he, he misjudged his effort. I mean, th you could also read into that a little bit deeper. And, you know, speaking of, of super sapiens, maybe he underfueled. You know, you think this, we're a couple of weeks out from the tour. And, you know, this is a time when, you know, riders are really trying to get to their, you know, Tour de France race weight. And you think it's a, it's a 16K effort. It's not a huge day. You don't, you don't necessarily need to, you know, fuel a lot. But if you are kind of riding that line and, you know, I'm sure that Thomas is, you know, I think he's come out and he said he's, you know, very close to his Tour de France weight. But a stage like this is a day that you could potentially under fuel. And, and it's happened before, you know, there's other riders that, you know, teams who I've been on who, you know, don't think they need to quite fuel properly for such a short effort. Um, especially if they're trying to, you know, drop those final few, you know, hundred grams before a, a Tour de France, um, and and that very well could have been the case. You know, you know, saying he, yeah, he misjudged his effort. He could have misjudged his his fueling just as well. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they reckon in the morning, but I get, I just think for for a tour stage, they'd be so dialed into it, wouldn't they? And they would know exactly what was required. And it, and, it, and Richie Port as well said he'd been caught out by just how difficult the stage was he finished sixth in the end but Astana first and second on the stage um they got it right didn't they and uh I don't know I don't know how or why but I wouldn't have expected Izagiri up there um Lutsenko perhaps slightly less of a surprise but yeah a, an interesting um you know un unpredictable time trial clearly a quick postscript or chat about the Dauphiné well, Geraint Thomas bounced back from his disappointment in the time trial. He won stage five, attacking with a kilometre to go as the bunch, a very reduced bunch because it had been a very tough stage, negotiated a hairpin bend. Thomas held them off, riding really well. Um, Sonny Colbrelli came late and fast, uh, but only passed them beyond the line. So Geraint Thomas took the stage win uh, with Lucas Postelberger holding on to the yellow jersey. Shoot, shoot That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour at the Tour de France, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Packed Coffee. While Richard, Daniel and Brian have been at the Giro enjoying Italian coffee every day, I've been sent a bag of packed coffee beans, uh, specifically bourbon cream espresso beans, and they were roasted and packed just a couple of days ago, so they're absolutely as fresh as can be. Now I've got a bean to cut machine in my kitchen, so I am going to make myself a coffee now. 
it's just after 11 o'clock so i'm not going to run the risk of falling foul of the coffee police by having a cappuccino i'm going to make an espresso um daniel will be uh, annoyed with me because i'm not using an espresso glass i've got this very delicate little espresso cup instead but let's give it a whirl Now, as I said, I've got beans because I've got a bean to cut machine, but however you make your coffee, Pact have got something for you, whether you use a cafetiere or make your coffee on the stove top or use an AeroPress or an espresso machine or even pods. And whether you want decaf or regular beans, uh, they have got just the thing for you. And although it's a subscription, you're not going to be lumbered with loads of coffee beans that you can't possibly um, drink quickly enough. So, um, you can pick and choose what you want and when you want it delivered by going to the website and uh, just setting a plan that suits you. So let's have a taste. Mm. That is a very nice, strong espresso. It's absolutely silky smooth. I can pick up that creaminess and even the chocolatey hints of the bourbon cream biscuits. Really a very nice espresso. I think even Daniel would approve. Anyway, go to packedcoffee.com, that's P-A-C-T coffee.com, and Pact will give you £5 off your first bag. Um, by creating your flexible coffee plan, you can decide what you want and when you want it. And if you enter the code CYCLEPOD at checkout, that's C-Y-C-L-E-P-O-D, you'll get £5 off your first bag. So go to packedcoffee.com to create your coffee plan today. Well, Chance, before we carry on uh, and talk a little bit about the Giro, a couple of plugs for episodes that we've released recently. Um, one is Mitch Docker's latest episode of Life in the Peloton with Ethiopian rider Skabu Gramai. I hope I've said that correctly. He gives us a little tutorial in the episode, which is helpful. Um, uh, Gramai uh, grew up in Ethiopia, one of 10 kids, uh, what, you know, spent a lot of time as a, as a child watching his dad working, fixing punctures, changing tires in a garage talks about coming to Europe, turning pro, uh, riding the Tour de France, which was really his dream, and uh, finding himself crying on the start line of stage one when he did do the Tour in 2016. It's a it's a fantastic listen. I mean, a lot of Mitch's episodes are really good. He has a, a, a wonderful way about him, Mitch. Very warm interviewer. And um, it's a really great listen. I had a listen this morning while I was out on my mountain bike, and uh, I absolutely loved it. So check that out. That's on our normal feed. We also have a new episode of Explore with Rolf Smith. Lionel went down to meet Rolf. Uh, he's an Australian-American or an American Aussie. I'm not sure what, but he lives in the south coast of England and his lockdown project, uh, which was to, well, it was called A Cyclist on the English Landscape and it's a series of self-portraits that he took uh, while cycling in and around his adopted hometown, St. Leonard's on Sea in Sussex. It was published in the New York Times recently and um, got an awful lot of reactions. So Lionel went to meet him and has put out an episode. I listened to that on my quite long mountain bike ride this morning as well. And it's a great listen too. Um, so you can find both of those on our on our feed, the Cycling Podcast. Chaps, do you like my T-shirt? 
I do. do I can't read. Oh, that is that the shirt with all the uh, all the quotes? Yeah. This is our cycling podcast T-shirt. I just just got mine when I got home from the Giro. Francois says, "Relax." Being one of the lines, it's maybe it's maybe reading upside down for you or or back to front. Yeah, rather, how come I don't have one? You know, I I, I need one. I I mean, bring, bring bring some to the tour, please. <laughs> Francois, I will bring you a T-shirt to the tour. Maybe one, what twenty-one, one for every day. Uh, maybe not, maybe not. But uh, I will. We will. Tr- we'll definitely try and get you a T-shirt. Try and get you one as well, Ian. Uh, how's that? Um, the Giro. I'm sure you were both glued to it on your on your telly boxes. Um, you've ridden the Giro, of course, Ian. Uh, what were your What were your thoughts watching it? Um, I, I, I sp- one of the things that we're we're always guilty of is focusing too much, almost exclusively at times, on you know the the pink jersey and the battle for the pink jersey and it was pointed out to me by a couple of people that there was there was an awful lot of interest in this race on the the battle for the podium and some of the the you know the the riders a bit further down the classification there were some fantastic stories in the stage winners too and i'm sure you enjoyed joe dombrowski's win on on stage three i think it was or stage four rather three or four Um, yeah yeah, but I, I remember, and I spoke about this in the podcast, you know, the audio diary that you kept for us at the Tour de France in uh, 2018, was it? Yes. Um, you were writing for Katusha Alpeson, and you really gave us an insight into that team had been, you'd lot, you were down to about four riders, but you were really working hard to try and help Ilner Zakharin finish in the top 10. And having an insight into that, that you know, the, what the plan was each day and how you were trying to do that, made me quite engaged in that and, and invested in it in a way that I wouldn't have been if I'd just been looking at the results every day. So I think that's something we have to all work at is, is you know, uh, looking beyond the pink jersey or the yellow jersey. But sorry, I took, took us off on a tangent there. Um, you know, what, 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 what were your takeaways from the race? Yeah, I mean it was it was definitely a Giro. It was incredibly wet, and yeah, after some after Dombrowski won that stage, I got a, a message from a friend. He's like, "Oh, I'm so happy for Joe, but I'm you know sad to not see you there." I'm like, "I am happy that I'm not racing the Giro this year. It is it looks wet and miserable." Um, but yeah, you're you're completely right. You know, it was it was so cool to see so many riders go off and and get these stage wins. And you know, Daniel made a point a couple weeks ago in the in the podcast how you know there was this separation between kind of the race for the gc and this the stage wins and there there wasn't much crossover between the two you know there wasn't very many gc riders going up roads in the breakaways there almost were two races within the race there's the stage wins and there was the the overall classification um but yeah when you look at you know having been in, in grand tours you know there is so many stories within each team and within each rider. And, you know, that is constantly shifting as, as the race progresses and as riders, you know, either climb up the ladder or drop out, you know, out of the contention, um, you know, and, and for so many of these riders, you know, a top 10 finish is, is huge. You know, you look at Tobias Foss in, in ninth place, you know, that's a, that's a big result for him. And it went largely kind of unnoticed to maybe most of the media, maybe up in Norway, it's, it was a bigger story, but you know, for, for a young rider to be top 10 in a grand tour, you know, that's, that's a real sign of, you know, potential in the future. Um, and it, you know, these are stories that are so hard to capture because, you know, there's only so much bandwidth from, you know, from viewers to, you know, digest the race and the pink, you know, the pink Jersey and stage winners. That's where a lot of the attention is, is focused on, but, you know, each team has a constantly changing, you know, focus of what they're racing, especially as, you know, grand tours go on, they become more complicated. You know, there's, that's when races start happening within the race. You know, a team is 
solely focused on winning the team GC or, you know, the, the sprint classification or the polka dot classification. And that's when races almost become, you know, cycling can at times be a complicated sport to understand. And that's when it becomes even more complicated. You know, the third week of a grand tour, when you see two teams kind of battling it out for the polka dot Jersey. And, you know, that's more often than not the times when kind of the big teams, you know, Ineos get frustrated with how the race is happening because, you know, a very established break has gone up the road and they can, you know, ride to the finish. But then all of a sudden, you know, maybe a, a smaller team puts a couple riders on the front to bring it back because, you know, they've missed it for, for another classification. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's sometimes a, a grand tour in, in many ways is so complex that it's hard to, hard to understand it as a whole picture. And, you know, you could write countless books of each team's, you know, journey through a grand tour. Yeah. What, what, what's, um, what I found extraordinary, you, you, you've mentioned this already, of course, uh, during the Giro and, and, and Ian again, you know, mentioned it a little bit, but, uh, it's, it's, it's quite new and, and, uh, to see so many breakaways, uh, you know, succeed, uh, like we, we, we saw in the, uh, in the Giro this year and we saw in the Dauphine as well. I mean, you know, with, uh, Van Moor and Postelberger, uh, you know, uh, weighing on the, on, 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 on the race, thanks to breakaways. Uh, we, we, we'd been so used to, 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 to the usual scenario. You know, we got three guys up front, uh, 10 minutes or eight or <laughs> eight minutes in front. And then the, uh, the sprint, the sprinters teams, you know, are, uh, you know, up the tempo or the, or the GC teams. And, and then, you know, the, the break is, 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 you know, is caught with a couple of Ks left. And it, it, it's not happened quite, it's not happened a lot in the Giro or, or even in the Dauphine. And if that's the case, I mean, it's, it's great to see so many breakaways succeed because it's, it's, it, I mean, you know, I, I had the impression very often that, you know, that some riders kind of uh, you know feel reluctant to go in a break because it's unless you have to show the jersey as we say in French you know and to you're in a small team and you have to you know you're you're the Johan Ofredo of uh, <laughs> of the day and 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 you make a name for for yourself by being uh, uh, you know in the front uh, uh, in every stage it, it was it was it was a bit futile and, and vain to go in breakaways in recent uh, years but but. In this Giro and in the Dauphiné, you know, um, that there's there's been proof, uh, ample proof that you know breakaways can succeed, and it's good news for the excitement of the race. That's the first point uh, about the GC and all the guys that you know we we, we maybe did not mention. I I I'm, of course I, I have to talk to talk a little bit about the French. It, it's funny I, um, uh, in in the tour there, there is quite a bit of talk about the polka dot jersey and the green jersey are, are inter- you know important competitions. It's not so much so in the uh, on the Giro. I mean, Sagan winning we, we, you know winning the points jersey was not such a big story this year. Uh, well, it, it did you know, uh, and 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 who knows you know uh, <laughs> who won the polka dot? Well, not the polka dot, the blue jersey, you know, the, the king of the mountains jersey in in this Giro. Geoffrey Bouchard. He was he was only the fourth Frenchman uh, ever to do that and the first since uh, Laurent Fignon in 1984 so he was quite a, a feat you know for for French cycling but it it, it kind of went a little bit unnoticed because uh, Geoffrey Bouchard is not you know he's not a, a, a household name and nobody you know he's not very well known and uh, not not even a leader in his own team so so that there was part of the uh, you know uh, some some of the outside stories we could have mentioned and I want to talk a little bit about Romain Bardet because I mean uh, th- this guy has had a, a, a strange well like like most riders you know that the, the way uh, the, 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 the pandemic has been going for 
them and the past couple of years have been going for them has, has been hard on Chris Froome it's been hard of, on Tom Dumoulin it's been hard on Thibaut Pinot it's been hard on Romain Bardet as well and and I mean he's, he's kind of the symbol of this generation that uh, you, you remember that the start of the season in my predictions for the year I, w- I was I was forcing uh, you know kind of return to form of the old guard well it didn't happen it was kind of wishful thinking on my part but to see Bardet finishing you know in the top 10 close to the top 5 uh, I, I don't know what to think of it is it encouraging for the, for, for, the, for the future of his career or is it the proof that you know uh, he's now reached his limits and, and, and he will never be again a contender for top 3 finish in the Grand Tour um, anyway I, I, I thought his, his, his uh, efforts you know uh, in the mountains in, in the two mountain stages when he attacked were uh uh, how could I say moving in a way you know he, he tried hard he, you, you could feel he was trying to be again the guy he'd been in the past he was not quite there but at least he tried and that was interesting in my in my view and there, there was you know some of the uh, of, of the um, little stories from the Giro to point out yeah I think you know certainly Bernal was a, a thoroughly Im- impressive and deserving winner but it, it did look you know pretty early on that that he was the the best rider in the race on Bouchard I mean I was standing by the podium as the final presentation were being made uh, alongside Larry Warbass who's his teammate AG2R and yeah he was talking a bit about that they, they had a very good race and I think for a team like that who perhaps goes to the Giro without huge expectations it was a real it became a real focus for them yeah Bouchard worked in decathlon didn't he and came to professional cycling pretty late it wasn't so much the Fignot stat that got me the, the guy that won the King of the Mountains the Giro before Fignot the, the Frenchman was Louise on mm, that's right yeah <laughs> I, I mean that, that that was what really brought it home to me how uh how rarely that's been achieved I mean on the jerseys I think the Chiclamina jersey has has quite a lot of kudos because it's unusual and and uh distinctive and the King of the Mountains jersey being just a blue it doesn't really have that magic that some jerseys have. We spoke a bit about that in the podcast. I think that affects the the, the sense of prestige around it. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, certainly for Sagan, winning that points jersey seemed to to mean a lot. And uh, you know, he's won won it so many times at the Tour de France that, that you know it's another another feather in his cap, isn't it? Yeah. Well, kind of on the. Uh the the mountain jersey at the Giro. We actually, when I did the Giro in, in 2016, Mikel Nieve won um, when I was, we were both racing at Sky. And I remember the last day, the last mountain stage, um, I think, uh, was it Damiano Conego had had the jersey for a long time and his team was, you know, fighting hard to, to, to win the jersey. And he was at Nepo at the time. And uh, yeah, rumor has it that the, the team came up to us, you know, because it, it clearly meant a lot to Nepo to win the mountain jersey. And I think they tried to offer us like, you know, cases of wine if if we didn't uh, if we didn't take the jersey and let you know Conego take the jersey, but yeah, it wasn't worth it to to pick up some uh, some wine. Well, you say that, Ian, but that that's a lovely looking uh, case of uh, Nipo wine I see behind you, <laughs> Vini Fantini wine. Sorry, that I see behind you there. Um, uh, th- there was a lovely moment actually, Mikel Nievi uh, on Sunday after the after the stage. Um, he. Uh, he caught sight of Paul Martin's. It was Paul Martin's last ever professional race before he retires, and sort of called him over, and they they um, they they embraced, and and I just heard Nievi say, you know, um, some nice things, and wish him all the best, 
Um, not, two guys whose paths you don't imagine would have crossed all that that often. Martins didn't even ride all that many Grand Tours, but it, it was quite a nice thing to see. Always, always left with a favourable impression of Mikel Nieve, I have to say. Yeah, he he's a great guy. You know, there's there's quite a few Basque riders, and I was always. Uh, you know, battling at the front of the peloton with Irvidi at, at Movistar and just the, the kindness of, of some of those Basque riders is, uh, you know, it's nice when you have someone who you re- don't really know, but, you know, they respect respect what you do. And I think, you know, for two older riders who have raced, you know, in the peloton for a long time, I'm sure there's a lot of mutual respect between them. And, and that's cool to see because they're, they're very different riders from very different places, but, you know, still have a mutual respect for each other, which is uh, something I think we would all like to see more of in, in the sport of cycling. It was nice. Um, you mentioned Viti there. Uh, I've been watching series two of the of the Movistar um, Netflix series. I don't know if you guys have got around to that yet. We'll maybe talk about that in next week's episode because it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, series one was good. This one, because Movistar had a very poor season last year, is all the more revealing. And it's just a fascinating study of a team dealing with crises, um, dealing with a fading star in Alejandro Valverde. Uh, and it's it's great. I cannot recommend it highly enough. I know Daniel's been watching it with great interest, so we'll maybe chat about it. Have you guys managed to, to watch it yet? No, I've seen the first one, of course, but not, not the second one yet. You've got a treat ahead of you, Francois. <laughs> I've, got two season, I've got two seasons to catch up on. I haven't even seen the first one yet. <laughs> the Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much indeed to our long-standing sponsor, Science in Sport. Um, if you want 25% off all your Science in Sport products, go to scienceinsport.com and enter the code SISCP25 at the checkout, SISCP25 at scienceinsport.com. We had an email from uh, Will Beresford. Thanks, Will. Um about our Giro coverage and Daniel of course came up with 18 names every day who might win the stage Will says I couldn't help notice that Daniel actually has quite a few things that he's disliked throughout this year's Giro so I've come up with his top 18 the sea sugar echelons and wind the Olympics a stag do 1101 cappuccino track cycling patty road circuits remembering the SIS code dogs sweet food food waste maroon 5 music but violins especially alan partridge bad pronunciation and the 2021 giro <laughs> that's a, a little a little bit harsh but thanks for that will i'll pass it on to daniel he might even hear it in the episode you never know um before we turn our attention to, to tennis in a in a in a in a manner of speaking um let's let's return to slow radio everyone's favorite feature um now this one really I, I love this one. I mean, uh, you're both both of you familiar with Stacy Snyder's beautiful uh, mugs that she makes and raises lots of money for good causes during the Grand Tour as well. This slow radio submission comes from Ed Felker, who writes, I live within a few miles of Stacy Snyder, and when I arranged to ride to her shop to claim my uh, friend of the podcast Gelato Bowl, I joked about recording a slow radio submission. She noted that the emergence of the Brood X cicadas is that how you say it? cicadas isn't it there's a big 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 feature of american life at the moment we say cicada but oh sorry <laughs> cicada you say cicada i say cicada let's call the whole thing off they've been singing loudly around her home 
That comment put the bug in my ear, so to speak. Today, my wife Mary and I stopped on our tandem ride in Arlington, Virginia, in the vicinity of Stacy's home and shop to listen to the cicadas. They are humming steadily during the daytime anywhere in the middle part of the East Coast where there are stands of trees. So let's hear it now. Thanks very much for, uh, for that, Ed, and uh, we look forward to another submission like that in about 17 years' time, when the next uh, lot of cicadas will emerge. Um, if you want to send us a slow radio clip, please email us, contact at thecyclingpodcast.com. Uh, now, chaps, really interested to hear your views on this, because one of the big stories in the sporting world uh, this past week has been Naomi Osaka, the tennis player who uh, at the start of the the French Open said that she would not participate in any of the post-match press conferences because she found them stressful and anxiety-inducing. That got a pretty bad response from a lot of people and also the organisers of of the French Open who um, insisted that she should take part in them. She then released a, a, a longer and more detailed explanation about precisely why she didn't want to to participate in them and she talked about having suffered from depression and being a an introverted person and find them very difficult um and i think that that swung the argument in in her favor it made me um wonder about how how the whole thing had been handled um you know from from her point of view whether it might have been better for her or her management to speak to the french open initially and explain the precise reasons why it was really difficult for her to, to do these. Um, so we had a, a situation where the initial reaction was to criticise the athlete and then the later reaction was to be very critical of uh, the French Open in particular and tennis in, in general. But it, it's raised a lot of questions and talking points about press conferences and their place in the modern media landscape because they used to be the, the forum through which athletes could speak to fans um, you know their words would be relayed by the journalists principally print journalists who would attend these press conferences and that's become slightly outdated now perhaps with um, social media allowing athletes direct access to, to fans um, but nevertheless you know even in recent years in cycling in particular press conferences have been often dull <laughs> but but sometimes very, very interesting and actually almost part of the theatre of the sport. You know, there, there have been press conferences where um, we've we've been able to observe riders, to, to ask them questions um, that they weren't perhaps being asked elsewhere. And, and even when they haven't been able to answer them, I'm thinking in particular of Michael Rasmussen's press conference in 2007 in Pau, the Tour de France, the most uncomfortable hour I've spent, probably, well, certainly him as well, but it, it confirmed his, well, his guilt um, in, in what he was being accused of at the time, and his Tour de France ended pretty soon after that. Um, so they, they can certainly serve a very important function, but I don't know, what were your thoughts first, Francois? I mean, I mentioned you used to run the press office, didn't you, at the French Open? So I don't know if you've got any... Any thoughts on that in particular before we talk about the cycling part of it? 
Yeah, well, well, you 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 kind of more or less summed up the situation as. I'm I'm no longer you know doing the, this job as a press uh, officer for the French Open, but I did it for quite a while, uh, and and I think that's that that we, we would have reacted the same way at the time. I mean, uh, it's you, you have rules, you have, you sign them when you join the the big circus of tennis or the big circus of the uh, of world tour, world tour cycling, and and you know it's part of the job. So uh, she 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 had, she had signed. Uh, you know, she knew the rules. She she had signed uh, a, a kind of a contract with the uh, WTA and the ITF to uh, to take part in press conferences. Uh, not, not you know respecting the rules and the, the contract she had uh, you know abided by. Uh, of course, she 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 deserved a sanction. I think it was it was handled very clumsily by 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 not by herself, but you know by the people around her. Because as you said, it had she said in the first place and i think that's very important issue uh, men, you know mental health uh, and 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 sports people these days especially with the pandemic uh, i mean there's always been a problem you know it's always been a problem mental health and high level sports uh, we, we've seen lots of uh, as well as riders as well you know uh, seen their, 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 their career uh, you know uh, well stopped by 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 depression or by by the inability to 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 stand the pressure of of the you know of of professional sports uh it's a major issue had she in the first place you know talked to the organizers and it's not only the french organizers because the the statement that was released was about the the four grand slam tournaments so it's it's a more general rule had she had she had she talked to someone uh, you know, at a high level in the Grand Slam organization about her problems, uh, well, it would have been much uh, easier to to handle. But you know, it, it, she 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 didn't do it well. All all the people around her, uh, you know, they didn't do it the way they should have. And in the end, she retired, which is pretty uh, sad. But I mean, the the main thing in in those cases is for is when you respect the athletes. Uh, I don't think press conferences have, not, have anything to do with. Uh, with the problem, because let, let's 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 face it. You, you were mentioning, uh, you know, social media, uh, n- the new approach of the media and everything. But the, the, the kind of shit storms. I'm sorry about the word, but you, you get on the social media uh, when you're a, a prominent a personality, you know, sports-wise, or or an artist, or even a journalist, uh, is is far. Uh, you know, far harsher, far harder, far more, you know, more bitter than than, than the, the worst questions ever asked, ever asked by a journalist. I think, in, generally speaking, a sports journalists were pretty, pretty kind and, and we're pretty supportive of athletes. And uh, I, we, 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 it happens from time to time that you ask, you know, uh, tricky questions or uh, uh, to, to riders or to uh, sports people. But most of the time, let's face it, we know the guys. Who we, so we, we, we sleep sometimes in the same hotels, travel together. We're all part of the same, of, of the same culture uh, and of the same love of the sport we're talking about. And, and, and uh, sports journalists are by far the least aggressive, you know, uh, journalists you can, you can think of. Um, to 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 end up with that, I, I think the it's it, it's 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 really counterproductive for for athletes to think they would live in a better place without journalists. If you look at the sports that they're doing all right, I'm thinking the NBA, for instance. In the NBA, I mean the the the, the press they're they're almost in they're in the dressing rooms, they're almost in the toilets and in the showers with the with the athletes but because the athletes are aware, you know, that it's all part of the show and and the, and 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 to. 
And I think we really should be even more embedded with the with, with the uh, even in cycling with the riders than. There's there's never been any any major problem uh, ex except in the doping era. You know, there there, there was a time when uh, riders and journalists were enemies. Uh, it lasted for like a decade, and and, and you know the decade uh, I'm talking about, and that that's the EPO uh, decade where uh, every rider thought we were kind of cops trying to uh, you know put them in jail, and uh, and and. I mean, so there was a real hostility then, and and but it, it was not that in a way the journalists fought. I mean, we didn't, we were not on dope, we were on we were on red wine, um, so it was you know. But there was this kind of hostility. I think it's it's kind of gone, and 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 I think that the sports uh, uh, has always been in a better way uh, when journalists and uh, writers are uh, you know live close together and and communicate on a daily basis if you take sports where the, the only way you can access uh, a sportsman is through a, pre a very rigid press conference uh, and that's the only chance you have to talk to a guy i'm i'm, I'm thinking formula one well for, uh, i mean formula one is 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 kind of locked into its all its, its only little confined world and uh, in france at least it's it's nothing anymore formula one it's gone nobody cares about it you know it's it's uh, uh, and sports were popular are, are, are and cycling is, is one one of the strengths of cycling is the proximity to the fans and the proximity to the press and i think this should be encouraged and not discouraged well that's and i think and i think you know, tennis could be the same. If tennis organized one-to-one -one interviews in in the in the players' lounge, or you know, access to the to the athletes in a relaxed way at, at the, the the at the, the tournament bar or, or the restaurant, then things would be much much easier for everybody. But but sometimes I I, I agree, press conferences can be too solemn, uh, kind of kind of you know, ceremony where where. Uh, you know, athletes don't really speak their minds, and some of our colleagues feel obliged to 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 ask you know nasty questions to uh, kind of stand out. You know, so uh, you know, so I, I I'll be quite ready to to get get you know to get rid of press conferences if other uh, ways to uh, relate uh, with the athletes were put into place. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of have to tend to agree with with Francois. Um, you know, as, as an athlete who's, you know, attended press conferences, they're very, it's something you don't really look forward to. You know, it's something that, you know, you have time to think about, you know, you're, I mean, and the fact that these press conferences often take place, you know, on the eve of the event or, you know, in cycling on a rest day, you know, the last thing you want to do is go sit in a chair in front of a hundred journalists, you know, answering questions that, you know, more often than not, sorry, <laughs> sorry, journalist, um, but are oftentimes the, the answers are pretty dumb, you know, and I think that you would find, you know, especially through this, this median of, of podcasting, when you're able to, you know, find a rider on his way to the start or at the finish and you just have a recorder, you know, that's when you get the raw emotion. That's when you kind of get these golden quotes. And I think that, you know, changing the, the median of how these, you know, interviews are done and, you know, how these, how do you get these quotes is, you know, something much more organic. And, you know, for example, I'm at this, um, a mansion here in, um, in Kansas and we actually are staying in this big house and the journalists are actually staying with us. And so it's rather than, rather than it being like this, you know, very formal, like, all right, you know, you sit on this side of the table, I'm on that side of the table, let's talk. It's like, Hey, let's, you know, let's have breakfast together and let's have dinner together. And it, it's, you know, you actually get to know them as people rather than, you know, just oftentimes you would, you know, especially there were journalists that you're like, okay, like I just have to do this. And it's, you know, I'm not going to give them the answer they want because I, you know, 
I, I don't want to be here at the moment. Um, and there are athletes, you know, in particular, you know, I remember Richard, when we tried to get Pete Kenna on, on the podcast at the Vuelta in 2016, you know, he, he was very reluctant and actually refused to do it. Um, but had, you know, had you come to the room and maybe met with Pete, you know, then you actually kind of, you know, in a relaxed environment, I think. I'd have probably been punched. <laughs> you may have been. But yeah, I mean, I think the, the median in which, you know, interviews can be conducted is, you know, needs to change. I think, uh, you know, uh, sorry, in defense of press conferences, the majority of them are uh, quite not pointless because they serve a purpose for print journalists who need quotes for their articles. But there are there are occasions when they're good. And even at the Giro, uh, you know, that's just gone. Caleb Ewan's last press conference as a stage winner was absolutely fantastic. Now, it's quite different at the Giro because it's quite a small, intimate thing. You know, there were only a few of us there. And uh, I'd been speaking to someone at Lotus Sudal who'd mentioned how tough Caleb Ewan was on his teammates. And so we were able to sort of put that to him in this setting. And he felt relaxed enough, obviously, to, to really open up on that and, and almost examine himself in, in the process of answering the, the questions. And it was really, really interesting. And it can, you know, in that moment when he's the stage winner, um, his his time is obviously very precious. Having the, 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 the format of a, a winner's press conference just it requires him to be um, exposed to those kind of questions when he's at his most newsworthy and when we're most interested in him. And that can be, as that example showed, very, very uh, illuminating. Um, a lot of them aren't so. But, you know, I'm thinking of... You mentioned the doping years, um, Francois. We don't want to be complacent and say we're we're completely through the doping years. But there was a period in cycling, of course, where doping was was the story. And again, the press conference, by requiring writers to be there, gave journalists an opportunity to ask questions that did need to be asked, and not just of writers under suspicion, but other writers too to get their thoughts. So I'm thinking Mark Cavendish when he won a stage in uh, 2000 and. Eight, I think, and I think it was the day Ricardo Rico had been sent home, and Cavendish was asked about that, and Cavendish gave a, a really, really interesting answer, and and so it, it can throw up these occasions. Bradley Wiggins' press conference where he ranted about people on social media, you know, would he have been so triggered uh, had it not been in a in a room full of journalists who were obviously part of the part of the trigger as well. Um, you mentioned, I remember, Francois, when Wiggins won the Tour de France, his press conference was the best one since Greg LeMond in 1989 because some people are very good in that in that kind of forum and others are not and others will find it very difficult. And I, I think in the case of Osaka, circling back to her, um, you know, if somebody finds some an aspect of the job really difficult, I think so, some understanding can be given. When it's not, you know, the, the thing that she's, primarily paid for which is to play tennis these extraneous things um she can be uh certainly excused from doing them if if it causes particular problems i, I don't see a problem with that at all um but i wouldn't sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater here and say that because you know she she struggles with that that they should be abandoned completely because i think that would be there'd be a loss there yeah i i think that you know we're called media 
and what what does medium means it means uh, an intermediate situation between between you know uh, the, between the athletes and the fans uh, and the the readers and the action we're we're, we're in between and and uh, and our, our our yeah and our role is to be in between and and to and and it's important to have someone in between uh, the, the, those two because if it it looks great on paper to just you know watch the race on on all the, the, the all the, the the channels and networks we have now which, which you know which allow you to 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 see all the races we want to see and then to have a kind of direct relationship with the athletes be, uh, through uh, the social media the the problem is if you have nobody in between doing the kind of the translation between the two uh you know you, you, you don't get news anymore you you get you get you, you the, the 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 risk is you get propaganda lots of lots of uh well most prominent athletes you know they, they don't run their own social media it's done by somebody else so so there's already a media person doing that but uh you know if Athletes, uh, I know some prominent athletes who, who thought when you know the internet became huge and the uh, social networks got huge, they, they they thought, oh great, you know I can handle my communication. Uh, I don't have to go through the the, the uh, effing uh, journalists. You know I can. They, they're useless anymore. The, the problem is you only get the, the, the what the guy wants to tell you or what his PR people want to tell you. You never get get down to the facts. And and as I as I said about the NBA before, it's in the interest of everyone to uh you know that that, that we, we're, we're all part of the same where we want to convey the passion we have for cycling and we, we don't want to lie about, about the, the, the flaws of the of the organization the, uh, uh, the, the 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 bribes the corruption the uh, the, the drugs if there are uh, any it's part of the of the world but but what i found i was mentioning the the doping decade but but at the time, already lots of riders want really were eager to talk about it, you know. Because I mean, the, I mean the clean ones, you know. Uh, when Christophe Basson left the Tour de France, you know, because he'd been uh, bullied by uh, the Texan, <laughs> uh, he, he, he left the race in the in the in the car of a journalist, you know. Uh, so, so which proves that 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 their interest can be uh, can can be the same, and you can you you can build relationships. Uh, which are interesting, and finally, the the funny thing I, I found was that uh, in my in my uh, uh, unfortunately long experience of uh, uh, covering cycling, the the riders who, who, who were the worst to interview, you were really you know nasty and bad guys to to us journalists. Usually, well, almost all of them ended up being consultants or uh, journalists. You know, so <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, yeah, like Laurent, co-commentators. Yeah. Laurent Fignon were, was was terrible, uh, uh, you know, to interview. Really, uh, really, real uh, asshole. Let's say <laughs> the word, you know. And and uh, and then he finished. You know, he ended up a commentator for the tour. Uh, we all know Mark Cavendish can be difficult so from time to time in interviews. Is great as a commentator. Yeah. So you know, so. Uh, in the end, Pete, you know, Ken- Pete Kenyuk. Pete Kenyuk <laughs> has ended up uh, on ITV. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, oftentimes you find these people that you know, and and someone like like Pete, you know, they they have so much to say. But and I think as an athlete, there's you know, especially with just the the pressure of social media now, it is so easy to get in trouble. And you know, you could be getting trouble from the team, from journalists, from people on social media. Um, so there is a fear at times from athletes to say the wrong thing and that's when you find maybe more and more athletes saying less because they are worried about you know taking a misstep and and being criticized for you know in some cases speaking their mind or making an opinion that is not you know so well received 
outside of the the cycling I, world. I don't. I also. I. I should. I should add to that that I. I Pete Kenyon's had his own issues with mental health, and I don't want to. You know that that could well have been part of his issue in avoiding journalists like me. Um, and I should say that Ian, you did a, an absolutely brilliant uh, podcast interview with him about that and his premature retirement from the sport. Um, uh, when was that released? Was that last year? Yeah, it must have been last. Uh summer or maybe two years no, ago it was, it was 2020 was so yeah in the summer at some point um yeah with well with Pete if Kenna anybody and yeah i'll put a, i'll put a link to that in the show notes for this episode because if anybody's not listened to that you really should it's a it's a really really um fascinating episode um so yeah just thought <laughs> I'd add yeah that I, in. and as i was saying more, more often than once i mean i i i was in the in in, in a position to you know interviewing an athlete that that who was in trouble. I remember Laure Manoudou was a swimming uh, you know, Olympic champion who really struggled in the end of her career with her popularity and uh, you know, with personal problems. I, m the impression I had when, when we were into, or I was interviewing her in, in, in the end of her career is that journalists were a way for her to, to kind of spill out what what she had to say I mean we we, 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 we can also be used as uh, you know, as part of the therapy you know uh, and you, you, you need so from time to time the people to talk to and I, and once again I think sports journalists mo most of the time uh, in, instead of being uh, you know kind of uh, uh, you know cold-blooded bastards we're, we're <laughs> We, we we can understand, and it's part of our job, I think, to understand and try to convey what an athlete has to say and 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 what the problem is and the pressure of uh, of being a top athlete. This, this is something we. It's part of our job to uh, to to try and convey that to the fan. And I think when athletes do have have problems and they're open about them, um, the there tends to be as as in the case of Osaka, an outpouring of of sympathy because most people are can relate to that and are sympathetic to it so um you know that that openness that she uh, she showed in the end you know had she shown that in the first place um then then the the, the narrative might have been slightly different or they they you know the the the, the battle um between her and the organizer of the french open and the grand slams may not have been quite as ugly as it as it looked from the outside Absolutely. Um, but we should we should uh we should wrap things up chaps um ian well it's the start of your day there um big race couple of days out what is your schedule like for today what do you do today is today a kind of easy day well speaking of uh media yeah a lot of uh engagements with with journalists and, and photo shoots and press whatnot. conferences <laughs> no press conferences but um <laughs> yeah well and as uh i guess someone who kind of works in in journalism now i have to uh i have to chase down a few athletes including 10 dam to to get him on on my podcast so i'll uh yeah i'll be riding around with my with my recorder in my pocket today just offer him a barbecued sausage and and he'll be he'll he'll be fine <laughs> yeah. he'll give you any he'll give you anything you want I'll make that deal with him. <laughs> well, listen, thanks both of you for joining us on the podcast this week. We hope to hear, hear from you again very soon. And we'll definitely be following your progress this weekend with interest. And we'll have an update on that next week. Good luck. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Francois. Thanks, chaps. To become a friend of the podcast or to sign up for our weekly newsletter, go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Our theme music is by Glass Pear, and this episode was produced by Adam Bowie.
Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart.